This is episode 473 of the Leaving Laodicea broadcast, and my name is Steve McCraney. Scripture teaches that our heart is deceitfully wicked, even to the point of deceiving itself. And this often happens in regards to true salvation or the difference between saving faith and non-saving faith. That is why we are commanded to examine ourselves, to take on this painful task of self-examination in order to see if we are truly saved. And often this self-examination can be quite revealing. 2 Corinthians 13.5 says, Examine yourself as to whether you are in the faith. Test yourself. Do you not know yourselves that Jesus Christ is in you? Unless indeed you are disqualified. And that word disqualified means reprobates or those not approved or those who fail the test. Man, that, that stings. That hurts. So how are we to go about looking at our spiritual lives in light of Scripture? What questions do we ask ourselves? How is the process of self-examination and salvation accomplished? And how can we know truly that we are saved and not disqualified? All that is found in 1 John. 1 John lays out for us 12 questions that show us whether or not we are truly saved. And today, we're going to look at each of those questions in detail. So join with me as we learn how to leave Laodicea behind. We're going to be talking tonight about uh, going a lot more detail about the 12 tests to determine whether or not you are truly saved and your faith is not um, non-saving faith versus saving faith. And I've got a lot of um, the slides I had on Sunday on here, too, to kind of go by as a review, but I'm not going to do that tonight. But uh, I want to kind of start, if you don't mind, by taking about 10 or 12 minutes and reading you something um, called The Difference Between Saving Faith and Non-Saving Faith. And instead of me preaching it to you, I thought I would read it to you. This is something that I wrote um, in 2014 that kind of really explains the dilemma that the church is in. And when we look at our family, um, some of those people are in thinking that they have faith, but it's not the faith that actually leads to salvation. We talked Sunday about the difference between regeneration and conversion, that regeneration has to take place before conversion. But as a pastor or an evangelist or just a regular Christian, we, all we can do is try to get people converted. And sometimes there's false conversions, and sometimes there's false faith, and sometimes there's an emotional attachment to the benefits of Christ, or just the feeling of being included in something that can lead someone to have a false sense of security in their salvation. Whereas Jesus said, the only way we will know his disciples are by the fruits, by the spiritual fruits that are produced by the Holy Spirit who lives in them, which only takes place at regeneration. We, uh, we talked Sunday about all the spiritual disciplines that we try to deal with, how to be filled by the Spirit, how to walk according to the Spirit, how to lay yourself down as a living sacrifice, and, and all the things that kind of lead to more mature Christianity. And every one of those, the, the foundation on all that is true, true faith, not false faith, not faith with an object other than God, or faith in faith, but true saving faith. And so um, 
If you remember, Sunday I basically laid out for us biblically what is the entire stages of salvation, beginning in eternity past all the way into eternity future. And there's election, which is God's choice of us from the foundation of the world that we don't even know about until after we're saved. There's the gospel call where we hear that message and somehow it quickens within us. There's regeneration, which is the most important part here. That's that supernatural infusion of the Holy Spirit where he changes our nature. He comes to live within us and this amazing transformation takes place. Once we have regeneration, we are then able to respond to the gospel with conversion. Then we have faith and repentance. The scriptures say that there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. There is none that is righteous, but now we are because this regeneration has taken place. And once our free will with regeneration, I mean with a conversion, faith, and repentance is meshed together with God's sovereign act of regeneration, then justification takes place where God in his sovereignty looks at us and realizes that we have accepted Christ on his terms, we have exercised saving faith, we have repented of our sins, and so therefore he declares us as if we have not sinned. He declares us just or righteous in his sight, not because of our righteousness, but because of the imputed righteousness we have received from Christ. Regeneration has to take place first, the Holy Spirit living within us, to allow us to place our faith and truly repent of our sins, conversion. Then, therefore, God recognizes us as saved justification. The Bible also talks about adoption. So when we're justified, we're instantaneously, simultaneously adopted as his child, his son, an heir, a joint heir, like it talks in Romans chapter 8. Then, now we know we're saved We've prayed, we've asked the Lord to come into our life, we've accepted by faith the completed work of Christ, and now all of a sudden we have this sanctification where we are now living out this holy life. This is where we're all at right now if you're saved. You either act like a Christian or you don't. You either uh, walk according to the flesh and grieve the Holy Spirit, or you walk according to the Spirit and please Him. That's, that's a choice that we make, and we're in this sanctification process, this growing in Christ. Christ-likeness, which for some people is a leap. For most people, it's a marathon. It's, um, it's a couple steps forward and maybe one or two steps back, just like a baby learning how to walk. But the ultimate goal is, is this infant in Christ who's now a baby will someday become an Olympic runner. It just takes time. Then, of course, there's the doctrine of the perseverance of the saints, once saved, always saved, or truly saved, always saved. There's death, which is actually part of salvation. We were absent from the body and present with the Lord. And then there's glorification, where we receive this glorified body and, and um, uh, live forever with him, rule and reign with him for a thousand years, well done, good and faithful servant, and all of that. In this chain of salvation, there are some things God does that we have no part in. This is God's sovereign act. Election. He chose you and I before the foundation of the world for no other reason than his good pleasure. I wanted to. It wasn't because Karen or Carol or Steve was better than somebody else. It wasn't because they lived in the right country. It wasn't because they were more intelligent than somebody. It was simply the fact that I chose them. 
we have this regeneration because I chose them in eternity past. What I'm going to do at some point in time in my sovereignty, I'm going to consummate that relationship and regenerate them by infusing them with the Holy Spirit. And once the Holy Spirit comes in, the book of Ephesians says, he's our deposit, our pledge, our guarantee of our future inheritance to come. Then God declares us justified are righteous in his sight. These are all God's actions. We have nothing to do with this. There's the idea that we're adopted as a son. He is the one that adopts us. He is the one that keeps us connected to him even when sometimes we stray. He is the one that determines when we're going to die and be in his presence because the Bible says that Our days are numbered, every one of them, before we even live the first one. And he is the one that glorifies us for all eternity with his son. That's why we are in Christ. However, there are some things that we do. We hear the gospel call, and we also are commanded to proclaim that gospel call to other people. Once regeneration has taken place, then we place our faith, because now we're able to do so, in Christ Jesus, and we repent of our sins. We are the ones that live now according to the spirit that lives within us. We are the ones that bear spiritual fruit. We now have a choice of being a branch that doesn't stay connected to the vine or abides in the vine. We bring glory to him by what we do or what we don't do. This is where the rewards things comes in. This is where the well done, good and faithful servant comes in. This is where all of that happens. This is where most of us are now. So these are the things that we do. The regeneration and justification The infusion of the Holy Spirit and being declared righteous and being saved are God's actions. But the next, the one between that is conversion, where we choose to place our faith in Him only because now we can. And this is where it gets confusing. Because if regeneration doesn't take place first, then the conversion is just something fleshly. The conversion is, you know, I want to be a... a Shriner. I want to join some sort of club. I want to adopt the philosophy of, of some great leader in the past. And, you know, I, I want to adopt some set of morals or ethics or stuff of that nature because it's something that I've done, but it does not lead to justification and it will never produce sanctification. So, what we're going to talk about is the difference between regeneration and conversion. So, I talked about that on Sunday. And I'm just going to click through these. The idea is the fact that one of the reasons why we can know that we are regenerated and not just converted is because of spiritual fruits. Jesus said, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do the things that I tell you to do? Many will come to me in that day and say things that are so spiritual, we don't even say those things. We've cast out demons in your name. We've done mighty miracles and works in your name. But I never knew you because there was no fruit. You who practice lawlessness. And so in the stages of salvation, justification is a declared act of God where he says we are righteous. And it always follows a changed life, except in the Laodicean church age in which we live. In the church age in which we live, the church now accepts only your profession. And if you say you're a Christian, even if you were eight years old at vacation Bible school, 
and you were emotional and you cried and you got the little Bible and a star by your name and then lived the next 75 years profaning God, your mama is still going to believe you're saved because of your profession. It has nothing to do with your words. The words only matter, conversion, if regeneration has taken place first. Is that clear with everybody? It's a vital truth. One I struggled with for years. So what is the difference between regeneration and conversion? I mean, they all have to do with faith, and that is where we deal with the issue of saving versus non-saving faith. So instead of taking a half hour and preaching this to you, if you don't mind, I'm going to take 10 or 12 minutes and read this to you, which is basically um, what I would be preaching to you right now. It says, all throughout Scripture, we see examples of people who have faith, but it's, not, but it's non-saving faith. All of us, every one of us, have some type of faith that we exercise every day. We have faith a car will stop when we cross the street. We have faith our prescriptions will actually do what our doctor told us they would do. We have faith a chair will hold us up when we sit down in a crowded restaurant. And we have faith the sun will come up in the morning as we prepare to go to the job. We have faith we still have. We all have faith, but we all have faith at different levels and in different things, and not all faith is the same. For example, we have a certain type of faith in our government or our economic system or the media, but that faith is not as strong nor of the same substance as the faith we have in the sanctity of our marriage or the trustworthiness of our best friend or our ability to keep a promise to those we love. Each of these kinds of faith is as different and varied as the objects of that faith. And none of these reaches the level of faith or trust or dependence we would expect to have in Christ. Hence, we would call these examples non-saving faith. But what happens when a seeking person like you or I comes to Jesus for salvation with nothing more than non-saving faith? Would that person be saved? Or would they be deceived into thinking what faith they had, bordering on intellectual curiosity, was sufficient for salvation? The scriptures repeatedly warn about the deception of non-saving faith. In the parable of the sower, which we went over some on Sunday, 75% of the seeds sown did not lead to salvation. Those who sowed in shallow soil and in thorny soil were deceived into thinking mere growth without corresponding fruit equates to salvation. Or to put it another way, faith without corresponding fruit leads to salvation. And the scriptures clearly state they don't. Additionally, the scriptures talk about having a form of godliness but denying its power, and from such people turn away. We see people like Hymenaeus and Alexander, both lost, serving as prominent members of the church. There are those who come to a wedding feast dressed in clothes of their own righteousness. The end result? They were bound hand and foot and cast into outer darkness where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. We have the warning from the Lord about the wide road that leads to destruction and the narrow gate that leads to life. And in the book of Hebrews, there are those who were, quote, once enlightened and have tasted of the heavenly gift, but never fully drank of the living waters of salvation. Remember, Jesus said he did not come to bring peace on earth, but a sword, and a man's enemies will be those of his own household. How? Because our commitment to Christ must be greater than our love and devotion to those we hold most dear, even our own family. 
Jesus, when asked, who is my mother and who are my brothers, he said of his own family, for whoever does the will of my Father in heaven is my brother and sister and mother. The sad truth is that many people come to Christ but never fully partake or drink of him and are deceived into being believing they are truly saved. Many people, most in fact, go part of the way towards Christ and end up short of true salvation. They feel and recognize their need for Christ and acknowledge he is the only one that can satisfy their deepest longing, yet they fail to appropriate him in their lives on his terms. They thirst, they come, but they fail to drink. They create their own gospel, their own way of salvation, their own standard of righteousness, holiness, and sanctification. Yet they are deceived because a man-made gospel does not lead to Christ. On the last day of the Feast of Tabernacles, approximately six months before Jesus was to celebrate his last Passover in Jerusalem and later be betrayed and crucified, he stood in the midst of the crowd and gave the following invitation. Quote, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. He who believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. That's in John 7. Jesus gives his gospel presentation to a group of people who have very different views about who he is. And whenever Jesus presents us with himself, he always forces us to choose. We are forced to either accept him on his terms or to reject him outright. There is no middle ground, no gray area, and it's not open to personal interpretation. It happened in the crowd at the Feast of Tabernacles, and it happens even today every time the gospel of Christ is proclaimed. The questions are always the same. Who is Jesus? What is truth? Is Jesus who he really says he is? And if he is, what does that mean for me? Is it really possible to have my sins forgiven? How can I be reconciled with God? Tell me what I must do to be saved. In this passage, three key words describe the path of true salvation. The words are thirst, come, and drink. And the promise, of course, to those who thirst, come, and drink is eternal life with God and the filling of the Holy Spirit, the living water Jesus talked about. Thirst. Those who thirst recognize a deep longing, an intense craving, an unsatisfied need in their life. It's those who come to grips with the reality that their life has no eternal purpose or meaning and they are dead in their trespasses and sins. They instinctively perceive there is more to life than what they're experiencing and therefore they try to fill the void they feel with all sorts of carnal sensations, sex, drugs, food, false religions and philosophies, immoral relationships, pride, selfishness, arrogance, until they finally admit only Jesus can bring light into their darkness. Come. When the personal longings become unbearable and the promise of redemption seems so alluring, so captivating and enticing, many come to Jesus for what he promises to offer. These understood who Jesus claimed to be, the exalted Son of God, the Messiah, the Christ, the Lord, and they understand what he has done for them, redeeming them from the penalty of the power of sin by dying for them on the cross. What they know and understand about Jesus is true. The problem, however, is what they do with that truth. In other words, there is more to salvation than simply coming to Jesus. You can't just come and receive him on your, on your own terms as some sort of trade or barter transaction. You must enter through the narrow gate on his terms, and his terms are not open to negotiation. His terms are all or nothing, total commitment, 
his life for yours. He doesn't come to make us better or to enhance certain aspects of our life. No, he comes to put us to death and raises us to life again in his image as his child to do his will and not our own. He is the Lord, the sovereign one, God Almighty, and we are now voluntary slaves, bond slaves of his. Remember the words from Romans 10, 9, that if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Note, it's Jesus as Lord and nothing else. You cannot come to Jesus as Savior only. He is Savior only because he is Lord. Most people never make it that far. They never move past simply coming to Jesus and they never progress to true salvation. Most view Jesus as an enlightened master, a great teacher, or supreme moral example for all mankind, but never as Lord. They fail to take him in his word or count the cost of salvation and give their lives to him in abject submission and humility. They want what he can do for them to make their life better, but they do not want him as their Lord. So they say a prayer and try to incorporate some behavior, some moral changes into their life, and maybe even experience a deceptive sense of salvation, like a sensation of peace or contentment. But they have never yielded or surrendered their life to him, nor submitted to his lordship. And as sad as it may seem, they're still lost. Why? Because their nature has not been changed. Redemption and conversion have not taken place, and the Holy Spirit does not indwell them as their deposit, the guarantee of their future inheritance in Christ. And then Jesus will declare to them, quote, I never knew you. Depart from me, you who practice lawlessness. Drink. This is where true salvation takes place. You have a thirst and you come to Christ to quench and satisfy your thirst. Yet simply coming to where the living water flows does not in itself quench your thirst. You must drink. You must partake. You must engulf, envelop, saturate in Christ the living water. He must be everything to you if you are to receive anything from him. Salvation, being a joint heir with Christ, requires more than reciting some prayer as a nine-year-old at BBS. It's a radical, unconditional, total and complete, without reservation and with reckless abandon, pledge, vow, promise, commitment, and allegiance to Christ as Lord. You are no longer your own to do what you wish with your life. You've been bought with a price. You now belong to him, and you are to to live to bring him honor. You are now pilgrims and strangers on the earth, because this world is not your home. This is the kind of all-or-nothing relationship that marked the disciples, the early church, and every true believer since Pentecost until today. And if you truly know Christ and are known by him, it will mark your life also. The scriptures tell us when Jesus finished his invitation to the unbelieving crowd to come and drink of him, and those who would come and drink would receive in themselves the flowing rivers of eternal life in the person of the Holy Spirit, the crowd was divided. Some believed his words, but only partially. Some didn't believe at all and wanted to destroy him. Nothing much has changed. As it was back then, so it is today. John seven forty through 41 says, Therefore many from the crowd, when they heard this saying, said, Truly, this is the prophet. Others said, This is the Christ. Note, they said he was the prophet, capitalized, and not a prophet. The first group was asserting that Jesus was the fulfillment of Deuteronomy eighteen fifteen, where Moses says, quote, 
the Lord your God will raise up for you a prophet like me from your midst, from your brethren, him you shall hear. For centuries, this passage has been interpreted to prophetically speak of the coming Messiah, the Christ. However, by the time of Jesus, the Jewish scholars, from their understanding of Malachi 3, believed this passage spoke more of the forerunner of Christ and not the Messiah himself. Now the prophet was someone who will show men their need for a redeemer, for Christ, and then faithfully point them to the only one who could satisfy their need. But the prophet was not the Messiah and could not himself satisfy their thirst, need, or longing. He could just point the way or be a path or channel, but he had no power or authority to grant salvation. Unfortunately, many people still believe this about Jesus. They believe Jesus came to point men towards the truth and that they would fervently deny he was the truth. They would declare Jesus came to point men to someone or something coming to satisfy their needs, but he was not that someone and did not possess that something they were looking for. The men said, quote, Truly this is the prophet, recognizing and affirming the special status Jesus had as a one-of-a-kind religious leader who did things and taught things unlike any religious figure before. He was in a class all by himself. They would even go so far as to say Jesus was sent by God and had a special relationship with God, but they would never receive him as God or serve him as Lord. They wanted Jesus and something else, anything else. And it was those who thirst and came but never drank. The second group said this is the Christ. This group recognized and believed Jesus was the Messiah, the Christ, the Savior of Israel, the one prophesied from the Old Testament. Yes, they knew these facts about him to be true, but they defiantly refused, like the first group, to bend their knee to him as Lord. They refused to commit their lives and future to him as the sovereign one. The scriptures do not indicate this group followed Jesus as Lord. They simply said, yes, I believe he's the son of God, and yes, I believe he's the Messiah and the Christ. So what? What does that mean to me? Now pass me the butter and biscuits. I'm hungry. This group confessed Jesus as something, but not Lord. They had non-saving faith in Jesus as the Messiah. Then there's the group that fully confessed Jesus as the Christ, the Son of the living God, but would rather argue and bicker and debate over trivial matters of their own theology and reject Jesus because, in their mind, he didn't meet every jot or tittle they thought he should. These are the ones who argue, saying, he can't be the Christ because he came from Galilee and Christ is supposed to come from Bethlehem. Plus, the scriptures teach the Messiah must come from the line of David, and I'm not sure where this guy comes from. So they compared what little they knew about Jesus with their own limited and incomplete knowledge of the prophetic scriptures and concluded he could not possibly be the Messiah because he failed to meet all their sincerely held convictions of what the Messiah would be. We have many in the church today who operate the same way. They smugly elevate their own statements of belief or denominational creeds or preferences to the level of infallible scripture and use them as litmus, litmus tests for fellowship or sadly salvation and even truth. But if this group would have investigated further, they would have discovered Jesus was of the line of David and did come from Bethlehem and fulfilled all of the Old Testament prophecies regarding the Messiah. But they were more concerned with being right in the eyes of each other and promoting their own theological brand or position than in knowing the truth. In their apathy and laziness, they failed to look for the truth because they arrogantly assumed they already found it. And in their pride and hypocrisy, they missed their Messiah. 
Again, just like the first two groups, they also missed out on eternal life. The final group was those who hated the Lord Jesus and wanted to destroy him. These were the ones who wanted to take him by force, but were prevented because, from God's perspective, it was not yet his time and his hour had not yet come. Needless to say, the people of this group did not understand Christ or receive the gift of salvation he offered. So what group do you belong to? Where do you fit in? What is your response to Christ? Do you believe partially, somewhat, kinda, in him? Do you say, yes, he was a good man, and yes, he was sent from God, and yes, he's a great moral teacher and example, and yes, he's a path or way to some sorts of, of some sorts to God? And if so, that's not enough. Your confession of him or your profession of faith is severely lacking, fatally lacking. For Jesus, he is all or nothing. There is no partial with him. There is no halfway, no honorable mention, no consolation prize, no kudos for trying. He is all or nothing, totally in or totally out, through the narrow gate only, on his terms, without negotiation or compromise. Remember his words, quote, Most assuredly I say to you, unless you drink the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever eats my flesh and drinks my blood is eternal life, and I will raise him up at the last day. For my flesh is food indeed, and my blood is drink. That's from John 6. Or in other words, Jesus gives eternal life to those who ingest him into the core of their very being as their strength, source of daily nourishment, their very sustenance. Jesus did not come to make us better or to enhance or improve our fallen lives. He came to make us new, to put the old man to death and to raise the new man to life with him. And what kind of life does he promise? It's beyond anything you can ask or think. He offers a peace that surpasses all understanding. And he promises we will be children of God, and if children, then heirs, and if heirs, then joint heirs with Christ. Just think, all that Christ is and all he possesses becomes ours as a joint heir with him. When, and here's the requirement, we give all that we are to him. This promise belongs to those who exercise real, genuine, saving faith in the completed work of Christ. One final thought. The seeds that fell on the path in the shallow soil and in a soil infested with weeds and thorns did not produce fruit. They did not lead to eternal life. Why? Because Jesus never said, you'll know my disciples by their profession, nor church membership, nor civic good work, nor nonprofit activities, nor from the applause of men. You will know them by their fruits. Fruits and nothing else. Do your fruits indicate you belong to him? We preach non-saving faith today. It's easy. It's easy to get somebody to respond. We use emotional cues to do that. We tell stories sometimes about this young man who was sitting right there as I was preaching this gospel. I can see he was under conviction. I see the Lord wanted to move in his life. And I asked him if he wanted to give his life to Christ. And he said, not today. There's too much living I want to do. And that man went out and was killed in a car wreck and is now facing a Christless eternity. You ever heard that stuff? True story, maybe, and it's a valid point, but it's designed to get a conversion. It's designed to get you to, I don't want that to happen to me. I'll give my life now to Christ because I could die out there tomorrow and go to hell. Not that Jesus is my Lord, but he's my get out of hell free card. And it changes everything. We as pastors do that because that's all we, 
That's all we know to do. You know, when you come to the big evangelistic crusades like Billy Graham, he presents a gospel message and thousands of people come down. And what's amazing is those people that come down and make a profession of Christ, how many of those follow through with baptism? Just even simple baptism. Small percentage of those. They they come to Christ, and some of them are genuinely saved, but a lot of them come to Christ. They're now inoculated to the truth because they think they have a relationship with Christ because they made a confession and a conversion without regeneration. But regeneration comes when you submit yourself on his terms to the lordship of Christ. It's exactly what happened to me. Time I was 12 to the time I was 28, I wanted Christ on my terms. Who wouldn't want a Savior? I mean, like, how crazy is that? God Almighty lives within us. He's going to protect us, and I've got this place in heaven, and my future's assured. Who wouldn't want that? But who wants a Lord? Who wants somebody to call your shots? Who wants somebody to tell you what to do? Who wants somebody that is going to give you marching instructions? Man, that flies in the face of everything we are in this culture. And so therefore, it's much easier to preach Jesus as Savior, pushing for conversion, rather than Jesus as Lord and praying for regeneration. Make sense? Jesus knew that. And so therefore, he gave the parable of the sower that we talked about on Sunday. And then Paul talks about the fact, even to those people who have been committed to Christ for a long time, that you need to examine yourself. I mean, he's not saying this to lost people. Everybody, Steve, you need to examine yourself. I've been a preacher for, gosh, better over half my life. Why do I need to examine? You need to examine yourself. About what? Whether or not you are in the faith. Well, how do I do that? How do I examine myself? Well, you test yourself. Ask yourself some questions. Take the book of 1 John, and he lays out for us 12 tests that we can see by our answer, and we'll know for certain whether or not we are truly saved. Do you not know yourself that is Christ in you? Unless, indeed, you are disqualified. I'm a phony. I have this false sense of salvation. It doesn't mean that I know I'm lost and I'm faking it. It means that I think I'm saved because I was sold a bill of goods that doesn't lead to true salvation. Just say this prayer and say you're sorry for your sins and believe Jesus Christ died on the cross for your sins. All those things that Satan would freely do. But the one thing Satan will never do is bend his knee to submission to the Lord Jesus Christ, which is the one thing that is required. Unless indeed you are disqualified, which means a reprobate, those not approved, are those who fail the test. Briefly, I shared with you on Sunday that this book of 1 John is incredible. You find all these By this you know, and by this you know, and here's the purpose of this, and here's why I just shared that. It's like I'm giving you a teaching and telling you why. And at the end of it, in 1 John 5.13, he almost tells us exactly why he wrote this gospel. And there are underlying tenets in here about standing against Gnosticism and heresies and stuff of that nature, making sure people aren't being led astray by false doctrines during his day. But he says this, these things, now that's up to this point, These things I have written to you, not to everybody, but you who believe in the name of the Son of God. 
Well, I believe in the name of the Son of God. Well, what does that even mean? I believe in his authority. I believe in his lordship. I come in the king's name, which means I'm coming in his authority as his emissary. Why? That I may know that I have eternal life. And that since I have eternal life, and I know I can have eternal life, that I will continue during dark times. And again, this church back then was under great persecution to believe in the name of the Son of God. To put it another way, that you will know that you're saved and you will continue to prove that you're saved, to pass the test so others will people, people will see that you're saved by bearing spiritual fruit that the Holy Spirit produces in you. And so if you take 1 John 5.13 and you say, obviously this was some purpose of him writing the book. I mean, there's many different tenets here, but this is some overlying purpose, then we should be able to find these tests, to test yourself, and by, by understanding these things, to determine whether or not we are truly saved. And so I just read these to you on Sunday, and I would like to spend the rest of our time together going over these with you in detail. I want you to know that this is not me talking. This is not what I think. I don't even like some of these. Uh, This is what the Holy Spirit is saying. This is how the Holy Spirit lays out for us that are signs, clear signs, that we are bearing spiritual fruit. When I preached on John 15 about bearing spiritual fruit and the only reason why we're alive is to bear fruit and all that kind of stuff, I had a couple people come up to me and go, how do I know? How do I know that I'm bearing that fruit? That's a great question. Um... You know, you will know because you see changed nature in you. Other people will see the fruit in you because the fruit is not, the fruit is something we can't do ourselves. Love, joy, peace, patience, long-suffering. I mean, come on. I mean, that flies against our flesh. But one of the ways that we will know that we're bearing this fruit, according to John, is by seeing how our life lines up with these questions. Here's the first one. Do you have fellowship with Christ Or do you enjoy fellowship with Christ and with his redeemed people? Before we look at it, I want you to go to 1 John chapter 1, verse 1. And I just want to read a couple of these verses to you to give you a flavor of what's happening here. John is talking about one of the purposes of John's epistle is to refute a heresy that Jesus didn't come in a physical body, that he was just a spirit. There was a philosophy going around back then called Gnosticism, which basically said it was from uh, Greek theology or Greek philosophy, which basically said that spirit is good and flesh is bad. So that if Jesus is good, he could not have come in the flesh because flesh is bad. All flesh is bad. So he must have been a spirit only. And if he was a spirit only, then it only appeared to everybody that he was in the flesh, which means if you think about it, he never bore your sins on in his flesh. He never paid the penalty in his body for that. And it negates tons of scripture. And so John wanted to make sure that when he was describing Jesus, that they understood that he saw them, they saw him in the flesh. So here's how he begins. Verse one, that which was from the beginning, that which we have heard and we have seen with our eyes, and we have looked upon, and our hands have handled concerning the Word of God, this tangible, physical Jesus Christ. 
The life was manifested, and we have seen and bear witness and declare to you that eternal life, which was with the Father and was manifested to us. So this is what we're doing. We're laying out for you exactly what we've experienced with Christ. And here is the message that we want to give to you based on what we have seen and heard and declared from him. Verse 3. Here is the Christian life. Test number one. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. This is not our message. This is the message we've seen from him, who we've touched and handled and seen through Jesus Christ himself, who wasn't created, who was all the way from the beginning. That which we have seen and heard, we declare to you. Why? That you may have fellowship with us. The word here is koinonia. It's more than just slapping somebody on the back and talking about what the week was like. It's a partnership. It's like going into business together. It's like sharing a life together. It's kind of like a marriage among a group of people. It's almost like communal living. It's, uh, that's what it was like in, in the book of Acts. It's where everybody cares about everybody else. And if one person hurts, then they all hurt. If one person rejoices, we all rejoice because it's us against them. It's us against the world is what the, uh, the word means. And so we're sharing this with you so that you can have fellowship with us. You can have this communion with us, this intimate relationship with us that we love and we enjoy because we just like being around like-minded people. And truly... Our koinonia, our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We want you to have fellowship with us because we're loving and having fellowship with Him. My whole life I've lived in the Laodicean church age where we are just busted up into 10 million different factions. Pastors don't get along with each other. Churches don't do things together. If somebody leaves this church and goes to that church, that guy's mad at this guy. I mean, it's just really crazy stuff. And we're split up and fractured so much that I don't even believe it can ever be put back together again. But when persecution takes place, which is coming, I mean, just watch what they do in California. And if, by the way, if it happens in California, it'll soon happen in New York. Happen in New York, it'll happen in Chicago. Happens in Chicago, happen in Atlanta. Happens in Atlanta, happen in Charlotte. Happen in Charlotte, it'll happen here. It just grows. Do you enjoy being with other Christians? Or better than that, do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ? Well, I don't really have fellowship with him. What do you mean? Well, it's more like a duty thing. It's like, you know, it's like he's the teacher and I'm the student, so I got to study for the test and. And so I get my Bible out and do the things that I need to do, I have to do, and I feel guilty when I don't do them, but I don't wake up in the morning wanting just to spend time with him because every other relationship I have with my kids, with my wife, with my family, my brothers and sisters is subordinate to my love for him. He who does not hate, mother, father, brother, sister, husband, wife, compared to your relationship with me is not worthy of me. Lord, I try to fit you in, but he's to be all in all. And what we have done, and again, these are not, these are not my words. These are his words. What we have done is we have dumbed down Christianity so much today that we are comfortable being lukewarm because everybody else is lukewarm. 
And if everybody else is lukewarm, then I guess it's okay for us to be lukewarm. And if one of us decides not to be lukewarm and is on fire for Christ, all the lukewarm people feel uncomfortable and will do everything they can to diminish that fervency. Haven't you noticed that? You just got saved. Hey, man, let's go out. What are you doing Thursday night? Let's, let's go out soul winning. What are you kidding? I know these people in my neighborhood. Man, if I go knocking on their door, tell them about Jesus, they won't have anything to do with me. No, you, you know what? You're just too excited right now. The day will come when you'll be just as committed and just as lukewarm and just as apathetic as the rest of us. And it's sad because we've accepted that as normal. Do you enjoy having fellowship with Christ and his redeemed people? Verse 4, and these things we write to you that your joy may be full. The joy of having fellowship with Christians and fellowship with each other. Fellowship with Christ. Verse 5, and this is the message which we have heard from him and we declare to you. This is not our message. This is Christ's message that God is light and in him there is no darkness at all. We are to be in Christ, and God here is described as light. And that message didn't come from John. This is the message which we have heard from Christ. Christ told us that God is light, and in him there is no darkness at all. Which brings us to test number two. Not what you would say, because we all say, yeah, I, I, I walk in the light. I, I'm okay. I'm, I just passed that passing grade, whatever that is. But would people say you walk in the light or would you walk in darkness? Verse number six. If we say, this is just words now, if we say we have koinonia with him, we have partnership with him, we have fellowship with him, we have intimacy with him, that we're bound together like we abide in him, if we say that and make that proclamation, oh, I love Jesus, and yet our actions, we walk in darkness, we lie. Well, what, what do we lie about? We lie about having fellowship with him. I mean, we say we have fellowship, but we walk in darkness, and since God is light and there's no darkness in him at all, it's impossible for us to walk in darkness and have fellowship with him that we lie and we do not practice the truth. Now, as we go through these, kind of scanning First John, you're going to find this word truth as used by John as a euphemism for Christ. In other words, when it's talking about truth, it's Jesus, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So it talks about that we do not practice the truth, we're not practicing the life of Christ that was modeled by him. But, by contrast, if we walk in the light, well, sometimes I do. I mean, I'm, I'm, I'm kind of, I'm, I'm working on it. It's just really hard because I got this business over here. You know, I want to you know, save all my money so I'm, I don't have time for anything else. Or I, I, I'm, in a, I'm hoping my unsaved boyfriend or spouse will get saved or, or everybody else is doing just whatever it is. If we walk in the light, I mean, I'm walking somewhat. Isn't that good enough? as he is in the light, and that light is from God. God is light. If I walk like Christ, as Christ walks in the light, then I will have fellowship with one another who also walk in the life, and the blood of Jesus Christ will cleanse us from all sins. 
Now look at this. The blood of Christ cleansing us from sins is what he does in salvation. That means you're saved. That's what Christ came to do. If the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses me from all sins, it means God has looked at me being justified, which means I've already gone through conversion where I placed my faith in him because the regeneration has taken place and God's allowed me to do that because he chose me from the foundation of the world. But if I just go through conversion, I'm sorry for my sins and I commit and I'm not going to do that anymore, yet I walk um, I don't walk in the light as he is in the light, or I walk in darkness and claim that I'm, I'm really a Christian, but it's really okay. I mean, scary passage, is it not? I won't take time to break this all down. It's just a, when we read the questions, uh, when people say you walk in the light or walk in darkness, again, his standards are high. They're not, let me just say this, they're all or nothing but he allows for human failure. But he doesn't allow for an habitual life of practicing human failure. And people say, that's why I have such a hard time understanding how a homosexual can claim to be a Christian. Well, Jesus loves me even more now that I came out and now I'm gay. You are practicing lawlessness. You, you have a sin in your life that has now defined who you are. And when everybody sees you, you're like a Christian and sin melded together, which is lowering the standard of righteousness that's totally contrary to anything the Scripture teaches. Well, okay, let's not make it homosexuality. Let's make it sexually promiscuous person. Hey, you know what? I, I just, I'm just the kind of a guy that I just like to sleep around a lot. And you know it is what it is. Someday I'll get married and it'll be okay. But that's just who I am. So you're a Christian fornicator, or you're a Christian adulterer, or you're a Christian murderer, because uh, I believe in abortion, or you're a Christian thief. I mean, the fact is what we're doing now is we're melding the character of Christ by claiming that's just who I am, and he's okay with it because he made me that way with Christ and devaluing his nature. If we say we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness... We lie about having fellowship with him. We don't. We don't even know what that's like. And we do not practice him. We do not allow him to move in us. But if we walk in the light, like he's in the light, because that's what we're doing, we're emulating Christ, then we'll have fellowship with those people who are truly Christians with one another. And God, Christ saves us. We know that we're saved. We have that confidence knowing that regeneration has taken place because no one just converted and still lost and do this. Make sense? Verse number, um, uh, what would I leave off? Verse number seven. But if we, have, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of, of Jesus Christ cleanses us from all our sins. Number, verse number eight. Do you admit and confess your sins? You know, it's one thing to admit them and confess them, but the idea is you confess them and you don't do them anymore. You're broken by that. Here's what he says. If we say we have no sin, oh, that's not me, I'm really a good guy, I'm, I'm just as good as anybody else, we deceive ourselves and the truth, you're going to find this is like a euphemism for Christ, the truth is not in us. But if we confess our sins... This is an if-then promise. Then he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. And this, of course, comes with salvation and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Do we want to live that way, a righteous life? 
I mean, is that one of the tests that we want to determine whether or not we are in him? Number four, are you obedient to God's word? Obedient to God's word. Look at chapter 2, verse 1. My little children, these things I write to you that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, although I'm writing to you so you won't, we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ the righteous. Who's the advocate with the Father? Jesus Christ the righteous. And he himself, Jesus Christ, is a propitiation, the satisfacting of the satisfactory payment of our sins, and not only for ours, but also for the whole world. The word advocate is the very same word that John uses in John 14, beginning in verse 16, to is the, that is translated the helper, talking about the Holy Spirit. Jesus is our advocate with the Father, and, Jesus, and John uses that very same word to describe and identify the Holy Spirit as our helper to allow us to live a righteous life. I could spend some time developing that, but we're going to move on because we want to know if we're obedient to God's word, which is verse number three. Now, as you go through the book of John, actually as you go through scripture, you will find that one of the words that has really arrested me for over a decade is the word no. I've shared this with you before. There's several different words translated no. Primarily there are two. There is one called gnosko, which is 1097, which means to know experientially, but it means more than that. It means to place your favor upon, to love, to choose, to adore. Um, Joseph did not know his wife Mary until after Jesus was born. Well, that's a euphemism for uh, a sexual relationship. He kept her a virgin. So that means a lot more than just cognitively know. Jesus, I know my sheep and my sheep hear my voice. And we find out that it, those belong to him. He loves them. He embraces them. So when we see the word gnosko, it means to experience this love and acceptance and embracing and to share that ourselves. The other word for, that's 1097 in Strong's uh, Concordance. The other word for know is Edo. And that's just like the no we think of today. Oh, I know the answer to that. Well, how do you know? Well, I looked at it and 7 plus 7 is 14. I know that. I haven't experienced that. It makes no impact on my life. I don't love that. I'm not accepted by that. But I know that. I know Donald Trump. Well, how well do you know him? Well, I said, you know, I've seen him on television. I read his book. I know Donald Trump. I Edo. I 1492 him. But Donald Trump Jr. Gnosko's him. Makes sense? Knows him intimately. And you're going to find John uses these words interchangeably. And unfortunately, they're translated just no in the English. And you need to understand which ones they are to get the power of what he's saying here. Steve, are you obedient to God's word? Here's what he says. By this, what? Well, I'm going to tell you in just a second. But by this, we know experientially. We know concretely. We know passionately. We know by acceptance. By this we know that we know him. Gnosko him. I can actually know by experience that I know him by experience. 
rather than him just being in my head and being some facts and being just somebody out there, some historical figure, I can know him intimately, and I can know intimately that I know him. Well, how can you know that you intimately know Christ? By keeping his commandments. Golly, can't you do it easier than that? Can't it be something else? How about if I tithe 15%? No. If you really knew Christ and you really knew who he was and you really knew how much he loved us and how sovereign and holy and righteous God is and that the Holy Spirit lives within us, not the graceful spirit or the loving spirit, but the Holy Spirit lives in us. If we really knew Christ, John says, you would keep his commandments. To what degree? Well, he who says, I intimately by experience know Christ and does not keep his commandments, watch this. This is not being redundant. Is a liar. I got that. I'm a liar. And the truth is not in him. Well, that, that's redundant. If I say that I know him, and I don't keep his commandments, then yes, I'm a liar. But the reason why I'm a liar is because, again, John uses it as a euphemism for Christ, that the truth of Christ, the changing regeneration, the Holy Spirit is not in him. It doesn't happen that way. Does this mean that you will keep every one of his commands? No. We're all going to mess up. That's what we, we mess up and we pray and we ask for forgiveness just like a little child stumbles and falls and we pick them up and we praise them for how far they've gone, but we expect the next day or next week for them to actually move farther. If we have a, three, uh, I don't know, a one-year-old baby who is learning how to run and walk, I don't know, they run and walk at one, learning how to run and walk, we praise them for that, but if that same baby is learning how to run and walk at 20, they're handicapped. It's sad. It's, it's, it's not good. It works the same way in the spiritual life. He who says, I know him and does not keep his commandments is a liar. Why? Because the truth of Christ, the Holy Spirit, is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, truly the love of God is perfected in him. So what are you saying? I'm saying by this, we know that we are, here's that phrase, in him. The phrase in him is a, is a term that Paul used all the time. But John is now using that phrase, that we exist in Christ because he is light and we walk in the light. And so this whole passage says, if you want to know if you truly belong to him, that the truth is in you, are you obedient to God's word? And if we're not, are there heirs of our life that we're not, it would behoove us to take care of that tonight. Wouldn't you agree? Number five. Does your life indicate your love of God rather than the world? Now, this is, um, this is 1 John 2.15. This is a really scary verse. Really scary verse, especially for men. Look what it says here. Do not love, by the way, the word agape or agapeo 
It's the difference between a noun and a verb. It means that altruistic kind of love. And the word for world here is cosmos. It doesn't mean the globe, the physical world. It means the world system. It means what the world praises and what the world condemns. It means what the world has to offer. It's our culture. It's our system. It's, it's just the way we function. Do not love the world. Okay. I don't love the world system or the things in the world. Oh my gosh, that's everything. Do not love money. Do not love fame. Do not love possessions. Do not love your life. Do not love what other people will say about you. Do not love pleasure. Do not love the the clothes that you have and the cars that you drive and how you, you lord your authority over other people or how things work out your way or your best life now or all don't do anything in the world now all of a sudden it gets kind of scary do not love the world we don't or the things of the world as men what do we spend most of our time doing making money making more money than we need to buy a bigger house than we need, to go into more debt than we need, to drive nicer cars than we need, but we do it because we've earned it, we deserve it, and that's the way it should be. What do women spend most of their time doing? Raising children and taking care of the homes and stuff like that. Children that will someday have their own homes and, and you know, this things of the world. Don't love any of those things. Again, the idea is more than God, ever. Why? Because if anyone loves the world, the agape of the Father is not where? In him. Well, these tests of salvation. You know, it, it's true. I'm, I think about money all the time. I, I look at my business and I check the stock market. If you have stocks, and I, I'll work 80 hours a week because I just want to make more money. Why? Because I just have a goal in my mind. My goal in my mind is I want to retire when I'm 55 rather than 65. So I've got this goal of saving $3 million in my 401k account. And and what are you going to do when you retire? Well, I'm going to do things that I want to do. I'm going to get a big Winnebago and buy a yacht. I'm going to sit back and and do all the stuff that our culture said comes as a reward from working hard that we all leave behind. And we wasted all those years that we can't get back Sobering, sobering question, is it not? Number six, is your love characterized by doing what is right? Just always doing what is right. Not not what is expedient, not what seems the right thing to do, but what is right. 1 John 2.29. Now here is a verse where he uses two types of the word know. If you know that he is righteous, I do. I, I know in my mind. I haven't experienced that. I don't, it, it hasn't moved to the intimate level of gnosko, but I know. I mean, I read the Bible. I know that God is righteous. I mean, even a lost person, if they thought about God, would say, yeah, God's not evil. God would be righteous in most situations. If I know that God is righteous, Edo, then I know by experience, I know intimately, because I know God, that everyone who practices righteousness is born of him. The word practice here means to make, to do. It expresses an action that takes place, either completed or continued. Now watch this. 
In Romans, it says that there's none that seeks after God, no, not one. It says that there is none righteous, no, not one. Even a lost person can do a righteous thing, but a lost person is not righteous. Does that make sense? So if I know that God is righteous, then I know that everyone who practices righteousness, who does righteous things, not just as an accident, but does righteous things habitually, has to be born of God, because only God could allow that to happen. That's how it's spiritual fruit. That's how we know. Which means if I don't practice righteousness, if I don't do the right thing, even though I know it's the right thing, no matter what the penalty is or what the cost is to me, then the opposite may also be true. One of the tests here. You know, I know I need to forgive this person, but uh, but I just can't. I know I need to, to... you know, take this money that I'm saving for me and bless somebody else with it because God, but I just, I'm just not. Okay. Okay. Scary test, is it not? Doesn't mean, again, that we're all going to be perfect on these, but um, it's just an indicator of where our salvation is at. Number seven, if I'm going to do the right thing, do I seek to maintain a pure life? My thought life, my entertainment life, what I look at on Facebook and, and what I say about other people, just am I totally focusing on what is pure and holy and right and righteous, if anything is of good repute, uh, anything praiseworthy, dwell, think, meditate on those things, or not. First John 2, or 3, 2 and 3. Beloved, Now we are children of God. If we're saved, we have been declared a child of God. So I am now a child of God. Romans 8 tells me that. And not only a child, but an heir, and our son, and if a son, then an heir, and then a joint heir with Jesus Christ. It kind of grows in intensity in those verses. But even though I'm a child of God now, it has not yet been revealed what I shall be. Being a child of God now, trapped in this flesh, living in this earth, is nothing like it's going to be. You know why? Because I know, not by experience, because I haven't experienced it yet, but I know in my mind, I know that when he is revealed, I shall be like him. Because I will see him in his resplendent glory of all that he is. And I will realize that I'm a child of his, but I'm going to be changed by just knowing who he is. And if that is true, everyone who has this confident expectation in him purifies himself because I want to be like him. If he is pure, I want to be pure because someday I'll see him like he is and it'll be revealed to me who he is. Now I know I'm a child of God, but then it'll be so much better. It is so hard for me many times to focus on the reality that well done, Steve, is better than anything I accumulate here. Anything what people think about me here, any inconvenience or pain or suffering that goes on here, because well done, Steve, by the Lord Jesus Christ is eternal. And everything here is transitory. And every day, every day that we waste is a day we can't get back. Do we strive to maintain a pure life? Because after all, he is pure. 
Number eight, do we see a decreasing pattern of sin in your life? Which means you're going to have sin in your life, but the idea it's less today than it was yesterday. And yes, less yesterday than it was the day before, because we're growing in Christ's likeness to be more like him. Here's what he says in 1 John 3, 5, and 6. And you know, we all know this, we just know this cognitively, we know that he was manifested to take away our sin, our sins, and in him there is no sin. So he says he is light, and in him there's no darkness. Three chapters later, or two chapters later, that we know that Christ was revealed, he manifested himself to the world and to each of us in order to take away our sins because there is no sin in him. And if we're to have fellowship and koinonia and partnership and communion with him, then we have to not have sin either. So what are you saying? I'm saying that whoever rest abides makes his home in Christ, does not sin. And again, we're not talking about a thought that pops in your head you have no control over. We're talking, talking about every sin that you and I commit, that we clearly have a choice to do what is right and wrong, and yet choose to do what is wrong. Or as soon as we open our mouth and say something we shouldn't, we're immediately convicted and we can either apologize for that, practice spiritual breathing and move on, but instead we just take that thought and throw it down behind the bed and we continue on the way we are. I mean, most of the, most of the sins that I commit right now are sins that, I mean, it's not like, wow, God, I didn't see that one coming. You can't blame me for that one. I had no control over that. I know exactly what I'm doing. I know exactly the choices I'm making. I've weighed the balance here, and I'm willing to sacrifice and obedience with Christ for momentary pleasure or exalting my rights or, or doing something that I want to do, and then there's always a penalty to be paid for it. But the idea is the fact that that sin that we struggle with should be decreasing as we get older, which is, means people my age... People older than me, those that have known Christ 10, 20, 30, 40, 50 years, should be almost like saints. They should be the kind of people that the young Christians look up to and, I want to be like you. Tell us how you got through all this kind of stuff. But instead, my experience has been that as we get older in Christ and quit work or retire or something of that nature, it all becomes about us, things that we want to do and complaining all the time or are not getting victory over something that we should have 30 years ago when someone who just got saved is struggling with it. And how are we supposed to tell them how we got victory when we're still struggling with it? Make sense? And you know that he was manifested to take away our sins and in him there is no sin. And whoever abides in him does not sin. But whoever sins has neither seen him nor, here's Gnosko, known him intimately. And again, we're talking about a habitual pattern of sin or certain areas of your life that you just flat refuse to give up. Here's the excuse I heard from a lady uh, 20 years ago. Well, you know what? I know it's wrong, but when it boils up down here, when it gets to my throat, I can't stop it. It just comes out. That's an excuse for not controlling your tongue. And we've justified it by, oh, that's just the way you are. And we kind of laughed about it. And that's not cool. I'm kind of the same way. Number nine, you demonstrate a love for other Christians. Well, ones that I like, ones that I don't like, no. 
I mean, it doesn't matter whether they're Christians or not. It's just if I like them, I love them. If I don't like them, I don't. And by the way, people who profess Christ can be the best or the worst people on the planet. Have you experienced that? 1 John 3, 14. We know that we have passed from death to life. How? Because we love the brethren. I can know that I am no longer on my way to hell, that I have been redeemed, and that my future is secure in him, that I am truly saved because I love other Christians. Even Christians I don't disagree with, or I disagree with. Even Christians that, you know... um, I don't even understand their customs or their habits or or stuff of that nature. That the kingdom of God is actually bigger than me. And the contrast is he who does not love his brother. First we go to brethren, the group, and now we're talking about individual brother here. He who does not brother rest, makes his home, abides in death. Of all the people on the planet... Christians should be the most loving. And one of the reasons why they're not is because we are selfish and narcissistic as believers because it's part of our DNA and our culture and because many of the people who claim to be Christians aren't. But the reality is that um, if you've ever had an opportunity to go to another country and see other Christians worship, it is shocking that I don't know anything about these people. They're doing stuff that we would never do. It makes no sense at all to me. And yet... I'm to love them. And you do. I know I've shared this story before when I was in Haiti having this worship service. And gosh, it was hot outside. I was, had so much accounting work to do. And I came to the worship service and all these people came in from the hospital and had IV bags on top of their head. Um, and they had a little praise band up there. I know I've shared the story with you. And um, this guy was going to play this little Casio organ. He had arthritis. It was so bad. His hands were just gnarled. And all he could do was just press on the keys with you know, this part of his hand. And that a guy with a guitar that couldn't play anything. And I'm thinking, this is, gosh, this is going to be a train wreck. This is terrible. I, just, I can't believe i got to sit through this stuff. And all of a sudden, they started playing. And, man, the power of God felt, felt like I have never in my life up to that day or since experienced. It was shocking. And it was like God said, I don't care how it sounds. You arrogant buffoon make it all about you. But these people are worshiping me. And it just increased my love for them. And I know I've shared this with you. There was this like six-year-old kid sitting next to me, some Haitian boy. And he looked up at me and he grabbed my hand and he put it in his lap. And he just patted it and looked up at me like, you'll get it, Blanc. That's what they call this then. You'll get it. This is how we experience God every day as a six-year-old. And here I am, I don't know, 35, 40-something, 40-something at that time. And you'll understand someday. It was, ah. We know, I know that I pass from death to life because I love the brethren. And he does not love the brother abides in death. Number 10, you walk the walk or just talk the talk? If you're a Christian, does your life back it up? Or is it just something we say when we get together in groups? 1 John 3, 18 and 19. This is really really a powerful one here. My little children, let us not agapeo, God's kind of love, the highest form of love, in word or tongue. 
Don't just love by saying things. Oh, I'll pray for you. I'll take care of you. Oh, you've, um, you've lost your job and you don't have any money. And well, I've got, I've got 3000 bucks here in my pocket because I'm getting ready to go buy what, something, a new lawnmower. And you know, mine's okay. But I, you know what? I just You go and you be happy and I'll pray for you, brother. Don't love in word or tongue. Well, how? Indeed. And in truth, now watch this. This is like a euphemism from Christ again. Love in action and in truth like Christ did. And by this, which is how we love, we will know experientially, gnosko, that we are of the truth and we shall assure our hearts before him that we are implied in the passage in the truth. It says we love in deed, our action, and in truth like Christ's love. And by loving that way, I know experientially, I know without a shadow of a doubt, I know completely that I am of the truth. Not that I'm following the truth or doing something truthful, but I am of Christ. And since I know I'm of Christ, my heart, I shall have confidence of my heart before him. Number 11, you maintain a clear conscience. I know it's the right thing to do, and I know I should do it. I just don't want to do it. I just can't believe I'm doing this, and I've already lied to this person. I don't want to be around them anymore. And God, I know I promised you this, but would you just forgive me? Matter of fact, I don't even know if you're going to forgive me, so I'm not even going to talk to you anymore. Beloved, if our heart does not condemn us, here's a lesson in Greek. You notice that Greek word there, katagonisko, The latter part of that word is gnosko is the means to know with knowledge, to know experientially, to know passionately. And the first part means against. The word condemned means to have that kind of knowledge against. Beloved, if your heart does not know against, to know that, that you're doing something wrong, to discern in a bad sense, to know something bad about it, the heart does not incriminate you then what? Every one of these passages I've shared with you is almost, almost all an if-then promise. Then if my heart doesn't do that, because my heart is passionate towards the Lord, then I have confidence towards God. And the word confidence there means to speak boldly or frankly with freedom with God. It's the kind of relationship that you have um, a loving son has with his father. You know, he comes in and, Dad, I just want to talk to you honestly. Okay, son, go ahead. And maybe they're hard discussions. Maybe the son says, you know, you really, I don't understand why you did this. Or you kind of hurt my feelings with this. Or, or God, it doesn't make any sense. And, and God doesn't slap you down for doing that. God doesn't, um, God doesn't punish you for doing that. How dare you talk to me that way like the Wizard of Oz? Instead, it's, hey, I understand. I understand what you're going through. Let, let me tell you the truth here. Because I know that your heart isn't against me. Your heart doesn't condemn you thinking the worst about me. You maintain a clear conscience. And finally, this is a great one here. Do you experience victory in your Christian life? Well, I have in the past, but I'm kind of stymied right now. Well, that's usually because our God is too small. This one is 1 John 5, 4. And all of these are before 1 John 5, 13, which says, I'm sharing all this with you so you will know you have eternal life. 
It says, and this word is great. The word whatever is pass or pass. That word is the word translated most uh, in Scripture as the word all. All. It means all includes the idea of oneness and totality of the whole, lacking nothing without exclusion. It means absolutely everything. So it says for whatever, and some Bibles say whoever, but what it says is for all, everything that is born of God overcomes the world. Everything, everyone, all that is born of God overcomes the world. The word overcome is a, a derivative of the word Nike, which means to be victorious. It means to prevail or to conquer. Every one of you who is born of God can never say, the world had dominion over me, the world beat me, the world, you know, devil just got to me, I, I, can't, I can't do the right thing because Satan just got a hold of me because God Christ has already defeated Satan and you and I are in him. For whoever is born of God overcomes the world. How? How do we have that victory? It's really simple. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. And it is our faith. Our faith. Our pistis. Same word that's used 300 times in the New Testament. Pistis. It's our faith and the object of our faith. Our faith in him. Our trust in him. Our, our love for him. Which brings me back to the same final questions that I shared on Sunday. Based on this, do you possess saving or non-saving faith? Well, I would like to say I'm 12 out of 12, but I'm not. I'm only 6 out of 12, but I know I have saving faith. I just, I just need to, to work a little more on my sanctification. I need to trust Him more. I need to have more victory more. I, I, mean, I don't know, maybe I'm 2 out of 12. And if you're 2 out of 12, you might want to consider looking at non-saving faith here. And if you claim to have saving faith, how do you know? A lot of these things we looked at says you will know by this. You will know by keeping my commandments. You will know by demonstrating love for other Christians. You will know by the victory that you have by your clear conscience. Is that what you have? Or are you not obedient to his word? Or, or is your life more important than him? And if you don't know, go ask your wife. Go ask your kids. Ask your husband or your friends. Hey, do you see Christ in me? Your friends will say, well, Sure. Sure. Well, I don't know what you want to ask. Then you ask your wife or your husband or your children. Hey, do I model Christ-like behavior to you? No, you don't, Dad. Um, you know, you talk really big stuff at church, but you know, I never, I've never seen you read your Bible, never seen you pray, never prayed with us other than God is great, God is good. and you, know, you haven't been a spiritual leader in the house. You haven't done any of that kind of stuff. Gosh then I need change. I need, I need to do what is right. I need, to, I need to focus on that. Can people tell by your life that it no longer belongs to you, but belongs to the Lord? And that's a scary one, isn't it? And that happens by just giving up things that don't matter to receive what does. And I'm telling you, I have by no means arrived um, at all. Um, I'm very transparent with you with my failures and stuff I struggle with because we're all stumbling forward, you know, to be more like Christ. Um, 
But what he has is better than anything this world has. Anything this world has. Or, like many people who live in the Laodicean age, does our life sometimes reflect Christ and sometimes reflect our flesh? And if so, Jesus clearly spoke to people like that in Revelation chapter 3 that I read on Sunday, where he wishes you in one way or the other, but because we're nothing, because we're not hot or cold, he, um, it makes him sick. Completely. I have always viewed the church and my life in Christ like a football team. That we have a head coach and our job is to prepare for the big game. And there's a big game out there and we're fighting all the guys that are dressed in black. And those guys are Satan and they want to do everything they can to destroy our life and defeat us on earth. And the fact is I know that I'm going to spend forever with my coach, but how we play the game here on earth is of profound importance to give him glory. Let him win the Super Bowl. Let, Let him coach his team. Everybody's got a position. Everybody does. You know, um, I may be a a tight end, or I may be a guard, or I may be just a water boy. doesn't really matter. Everybody has a position. And it's the head coach's job to put us wherever he thinks we're going to be the best. But everybody has to work together. Because if the offensive line doesn't block, then it doesn't matter who your running back is, they're not going to make the line of scrimmage. Everybody has to do their job. And if you don't do your job, he pulls you out and he sits you on the bench for more coaching and for more instruction and more practice and puts somebody else in there. And the goal in the Christian life is to be playing, to be on the field, to be first string. And the guys that are first string are the guys that show up at practice early and they do double the uh, the exercise that the conditioning coach gives you, and they study the playbook when they could be watching television, and they're absolutely consumed with wanting to please the coach and play the game. Know what I mean? If you're injured, they take you off the field, and they bandage you up until you're healthy again. Maybe you've had a terrible setback in your life, or your faith has been assaulted, and they put you back in, and that's the goal. Whether you're the water boy or whether you're the guy next to the coach with the clipboard or whether you're the quarterback, it doesn't matter because the coach gets all the glory. You and I played on a football team. I mean, you guys remember playing football in high school and junior high and all that kind of stuff. I mean, none of us were satisfied sitting on the bench. None. None. And if we were, why are you even out there? Getting sweaty with a bunch of guys, having a shower with men. I hate that. You know, why, why would you even do that kind of stuff unless it was for a cause greater than yourself? And so I've had to had quite a few conversations with the head coach uh, when he has benched me or he's called me off the field or I have said, can you put me in? And his response is, you're not ready yet because I've slacked off at practice. And when we slack off at practice, why would we expect to play? And so I want to encourage you as we go through these, if you look at these and you realize you may have non-saving faith, you can take care of that tonight. That's no big deal. The fact that you're even here and you want to hear about that is an indication that you're called and elected. All we have to do is accept him on his terms. You wouldn't be here if God hadn't placed that God-shaped heart in you that only he can fill. 
But if you're going over these, like happened to me, and I see that I'm lacking in some of those areas, then we need to be more committed to the coach, be more committed to the game, and say no to the other things that everybody else is doing that's not playing because we want to be able to wear the letter. That's old high school stuff. Wear the letter at the, uh, at the end of the game. Well, I, I didn't share this with you for you to be condemned. I shared this with you to be encouraged because First John tells us exactly what we need to do to be pleasing to him. Let me pray.